Tomorrow is April 22nd, Earth Day, as it's now known, a day to observe the planet we call home. Some folks will plant trees to mark the occasion. Others will help clean up the park or beach in their neighborhood. Us, we're bringing you a collection of audio essays we commissioned to help spark discussion on the environment and its future, as well as songs that reflect on the great Mother Earth. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. The first Earth Day was held on April 22, 1970. It was started by U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin. He didn't like what was happening to the environment, so he called for an environmental teach-in, or Earth Day. The idea stuck. 20 million people took part in the first Earth Day 37 years ago. Today, more than 500 million people and national governments in 175 countries observe the day. Many environmentalists say every day should be Earth Day, and with concerns that global warming will lead to massive power outages, devastating droughts, and rising sea levels, more and more people are agreeing with them. Andy Revkin covers global warming and other environmental issues for The New York Times. He's also the author of The North Pole Was Here, a prize-winning book on global and Arctic climate change. We asked Andy to share his thoughts on how global warming could affect New York City. It's the aspects of global warming we don't understand that will matter most to people in and around New York. The basics are now clear. The latest huge study of climate change, released by an international science panel in February, said with 90% confidence that we are now the main force pushing up the planet's thermostat. The prime culprit is the billions of tons of carbon dioxide emitted each year by burning fossil fuels. The gas traps heat like a see-through blanket. 90% confidence is about as good as it gets in science. More CO2 equals a warmer world. It may as well be a physics formula. Those who agree on the basics now include everyone from Newt Gingrich to, of course, Al Gore. A few specifics are also quite clear. Summertime hot spells around here will almost certainly be more numerous and hotter, especially nights. Now there's a lovely thought. While the well-to-do can crank up the A.C. or flee to the Hamptons, at least the parts of the Hamptons that don't end up underwater, if you're a retiree in a walk-up tenement in East New York with a dark asphalt roof on top, you're in trouble. But there's plenty we don't know. Basically, almost everything that matters to people. For New Yorkers, there are a few rather glaring gaps, and experts say the lack of understanding is no cause for comfort. That same international climate report had to leave out a projection for how much seas may rise as the great ice sheets of Greenland and West Antarctica feel the heat. That's a frustration if you're a city planner with dozens of miles of coastal infrastructure to worry about. In other words, the grandchildren of today's children may inhabit a city surrounded by seawalls. The views of the bustling harbor and glimmering rivers we now enjoy while strolling at street level may only be possible from second-story windows. Or they may still be able to bike along the Chelsea Piers as they do today. We just don't know. The 19 upstate reservoirs that have slaked the thirst of this growing city for generations could be overflowing routinely in 100 years. But scientists project they also could be muddied by frequent raging downpours like those earlier this month. So much for all those awards handed out regularly for the city's splendid tap water. That means higher odds that the city could have to spend billions of dollars on filtration plants, even without runaway development in the hills around the watersheds. That's one projection, probably the most likely. But while global trends are fairly straightforward, what happens to a particular place is still highly uncertain, even in the fancy climate simulations run on the world's most powerful supercomputers. Those reservoirs may end up chronically underfilled, and we may have to join cities like Perth, Australia, that have already begun to turn seawater into drinking water, 
In their case, they're using a giant wind farm already to power the third largest desalination plant in the world, and they're already planning to build another one. For Australia, climate is already a threat. How should we respond to what we don't know, along with what we do? People deal great with uncertainty in their daily lives. Most of us drive slower when it's foggy. Homeowners don't buy fire insurance because they know their home is going to burn down. It's a hedge against the worst-case disaster. It's an investment for the future. But with global-scale risks like global warming, so far we haven't done as well in the risk management department, many experts say. And by the time the risks are clear, they say, it'll be too late to do anything meaningful about it. That's why an awful lot of scientists are telling me these days we'd better start buying some global fire insurance in the form of actions that limit warming, and we'd be smart to start soon. Andy Ravkin has been covering global warming issues for many years now. He writes for The New York Times. He's also the author of a book on global warming and Arctic climate change called The North Pole Was Here. Let's move on now to our next essayist. Ruth Altchek is a senior editor with Domino Magazine. It's a New York-based lifestyle publication. They recently decided to devote an issue to eco-friendly design, and Ruth was put in charge. For her, the assignment was an environmental wake-up call. The truth is, before my editor-in-chief said, Ruth, we're doing a green issue, and you're in charge, I didn't think much about the environment. As a busy New Yorker trying to keep her life together, recycling was not on the top of my to-do list. My memories of Earth Day from grade school were free T-shirts that you'd never really want to wear again and statistics about vanishing polar bears. As an adult, when I would hear about green products, I figured it meant sacrificing style and comfort, rough toilet paper, dingy brown fabrics, and strange meat substitutes. What my colleagues and I found after months of research, testing products, and reading companies' fine print is that green really isn't about sacrifice at all. It's about combining sustainable materials and conscientious manufacturing to create beautiful, useful things. In other words, it's about good design. To assess the greenness of most products, I learned, you have to ask two key questions. Is it healthy for the planet, and is it healthy for you? Take wood furniture, for example. Nearly half of the world's original forests have been cut down, and another 40 million acres vanish each year. And then there's the invisible menace known as off-gassing. That's what happens when the formaldehyde, common in glues, finishes, and even plywood, leaches from furniture and pollutes indoor air. Or consider rugs. In the U.S. alone, almost 4.7 billion pounds of carpet are dumped annually rather than recycled, largely because of their synthetic components. In your home, these synthetics can release harmful fumes into the air for weeks after installation. So when put up against our two criteria, we see that both standard wood furniture and carpeting are decidedly not healthy for us or the planet. The good news is that there are alternatives, amazing alternatives. Many manufacturers produce gorgeous pieces from wood certified by the Forest Stewardship Council, which ensures timber is harvested in the land and habitat-friendly way. And they are using natural and water-based glues and finishes that won't off-gas in your home. As for rugs, from old-school wool to innovative hemp, yes, hemp can be beautiful. The choices in biodegradable natural fibers are astounding. So as we worked on the green issue of our magazine, rather than sound a scary red alert, we ended up with a celebration of people, products, and companies. The items we featured had undeniable eco-cred, but the stuff was just irresistibly stylish. I love this new post-minimalist green era, exclaimed one of our most discerning style editors upon examining a roll of pop-inspired wallpaper printed on recycled paper with vegetable dye inks. 
our entire staff's view of responsible decorating was forever changed. As I look around my apartment, I see the sofa I got last year from a popular retail chain and wonder, was virgin wood used to make its frame? What about my giant pillow-top mattress? What exactly is inside that thing? At least the orange plastic coffee table my parents bought in the 70s could be considered recycled after all these years. That said, I'm not planning a massive furniture purge anytime soon, and I'm not suggesting you should either. But I've started to think about furniture in a whole new way, and knowing that my next purchase will be both good for me and the planet feels pretty good. After all, as we say at Domino Magazine, the home is the setting and springboard for our lives. The better it reflects our needs and our care for the planet, the happier we'll be. Ruth Altchek is a senior editor with Domino Magazine, and now someone who cares a whole lot more about the environment. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're reflecting on Earth Day with essay and song. Coming up, an environmental group makes a case for a program to recycle electronics in New York City. And we'll hear from the new head of the Audubon Society. But first, let's take a nature-inspired musical break. One of the musical works most commonly associated with the natural world is Aaron Copland's Appalachian Spring. Composed in the fall of 1944 at the behest of choreographer Martha Graham, Copland claimed that the Appalachian Mountains weren't actually the direct inspiration for his work. Nevertheless, his piece captures something essential about natural beauty, and we thought it'd be nice to take a listen to some of Appalachian Spring now. Here's part of the most well-known movement, one that borrows its theme from the traditional Shaker song, The Gift to be Simple. Enjoy it. There's lots more to come on Cityscape in just a couple of minutes. We're listening to Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring on Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki. There's much more to come on Cityscape. Stay tuned.
You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. With Earth Day coming up tomorrow, this morning's show has a green theme. We're bringing you essays and song inspired by the environment. Okay, so right now you separate your paper, glass, and metals. But what do you do with your old cell phone or boombox? Our next essayist is Yorina Mojica, and she's been faced with that question many times. Yorina is with the Natural Resources Defense Council. The group wants the city to make it easier for New Yorkers to toss out their old electronics in an environmentally responsible way. I hesitate to get rid of my old electronics. Computers, printers, my ancient CD player. I even have a Walkman lying around. I don't know what I'm going to do with these things, and I don't know why I still have them. But there's this sense that they don't go with the regular trash. They just don't belong. And the reality is, our instincts are right. They don't belong in the regular trash with everything else. Electronics contain a lot of toxic chemicals, such as lead, mercury, and barium oxide. And while these materials won't harm you when the electronics are sitting safely in your home, they do have the potential to cause problems when you throw them out. When electronics are dumped in landfills, those toxic chemicals can potentially ooze out of the electronic device and seep into our groundwater. When electronics are sent to the incinerator, those toxic materials are burned and sent into the air that we breathe. This issue of electronics and trash has become important enough to receive its own moniker, e-waste. This includes old computers, TVs, stereos, DVD players, iPods, you name it. It's no surprise that it's acquired a nickname already. E-waste is now the fastest growing type of trash in the U.S. And while, right now, electronic waste may represent just 1% of our garbage, it contributes up to 70% of the toxic materials in our landfills. And yet, at the same time, electronics also have a lot of valuable materials, like gold and copper, that make them prime for recycling. The recycling that does occur happens mostly through a number of nonprofit organizations that work to recycle these products. But more and more, states and cities are developing recycling programs to address this issue. Washington State, Maine, and California all have programs. And now, New York City is considering a new law this spring. The New York City bill, called Intro 104, would require the manufacturers to take their products back for recycling once you, the consumer, are done with them. These manufacturers would be held accountable for recycling their products. So, the companies would have a newfound incentive to reduce the amount of toxins in the stuff they produce in the first place. This idea is called extended producer responsibility, and it guarantees that the consumer doesn't get stuck with the short end of the stick. I'd like the City Council to pass Intro 104 because I'd like an easy way to get rid of all that stuff in my apartment. Oh, and by the way, that stuff I mentioned earlier? Well, if I'm coming clean here, I should confess. It also includes my old clunky TV that I've now replaced with a new flat screen, as well as that mini iPod I foolishly purchased right before the video iPod came out. I know that there are a few local neighborhood recycling efforts I can and should get to some Saturday afternoon, and I will. They collect all these items and are a great resource that everyone should take advantage of. But it sure would be nice to know that there was a better and simpler way to get this job done. Let's hope the city council agrees. Yorina Mojica is with the Natural Resources Defense Council. If you want to join their campaign for an electronics recycling program in New York City, visit nrdc.org.
The weather's finally starting to warm up this weekend, so maybe you can celebrate Earth Day by simply getting outside and enjoying the great outdoors. To Glenn Phillips, spending time outside is an essential part of changing attitudes about the environment. Glenn is the new executive director of the New York City Audubon Society. Here's his essay. My friends have always thought I was a little nutty for caring about birds and biodiversity. Since taking over as executive director at New York City Audubon, they've wondered if it wasn't time for an intervention. Over dinner last week, one asked, with all the violence, poverty, and homelessness in the world, why should anyone care about birds? My answer, simply, is that an impoverished environment contributes to human misery, while an environment rich in species and habitats supports the development of people and wildlife alike. This argument is not a new one. As Frederick Law Olmsted, the designer of Central Park, wrote in 1881, the charm of natural scenery is an influence of the highest curative value, tending more than any single form of medication we can use to establish sound minds in sound bodies, the foundation of all wealth. Today, an increasing body of scientific evidence supports the contention that spending time in nature is essential to the mental, physical, and spiritual health of people, and that the quality of that landscape matters. Studies have shown that time spent in nature increases concentration and self-discipline, coordination, balance and agility, and stimulates positive social interactions. I can vividly recall taking a reporter through Prospect Park on a beautiful fall day and watching with amazement as she calmed and focused during our walk. Even the pitch of her voice dropped as we walked through Brooklyn's last forest, bright with the fall foliage and alive with the sounds of birds. Children who play in nature play in more creative ways, ways that foster language and collaborative skills. One intriguing study found that even in rural areas, children who lived with more diverse plants near their homes performed better in academic settings. I've seen the impact of nature on my own three-year-old. After a day in the park, she is invariably full of stories about how many snails she found and much easier to settle into bed at night. Nature is not sufficient to solve the world's problems, but it is an essential part of any solution. Nature must not become a rare treasure isolated from our daily experience. Nature must be nurtured in every backyard, schoolyard, and park. A world without violence, poverty, and homelessness must, by necessity, include room for robins and redtails. Protecting wild birds and their habitat in all five boroughs is not a luxury for the privileged few, but rather essential to improving the lives of all New Yorkers. While it may seem like an oxymoron, nature is essential to the development and maintenance of human civilization. Glenn Phillips, the new head of the New York City Audubon Society. If Glenn has inspired you to get outdoors, you may want to join him for one of the many bird-watching programs Audubon runs throughout the city. Check out nycaudubon.org. Now that we're talking about our fine-feathered friends, why not hear some music inspired by them? Some of you may recall we devoted an entire cityscape to birds this past fall. In that show, we were joined by a local concertina player, Jody Kruskal. Jody has a whole host of avian songs. Here's one of them. There are bird songs all around us, and composers or people who write these fiddle tunes often take inspiration from the sounds around us. So there are a number of sort of bird quotes in these fiddle tunes. Uh, Chickens. There's a lot of chicken songs. Uh, This is the Hen's March or the Midden. Here we go. 
Jody Kruskal and his bird-inspired music. Want to hear the whole cityscape on birds? Check out our archives at WFUV.org. Earlier in the show, we heard from Ruth Altchek of Domino Magazine about green design. One of the places you can find eco-friendly products in New York City is in Brooklyn at a place called 3R Living. 3R, as in reduce, reuse, recycle. Mark Caserta co-owns the store with his wife, Samantha. We asked him to share his experiences as a green business owner. He showed up at our studios wearing a solar-paneled backpack, one of the many innovative designs you'll find at 3R. Back in April of 2004, my wife, Samantha, a longtime retail manager, and I, a longtime environmental activist, opened an eco-friendly home and lifestyle store in Park Slope, Brooklyn, called 3R Living. The store was the perfect marriage of our interests, and we couldn't have been more excited when we finally opened on April 16, 2004, to much fanfare. Sure, some of the customers who left the store were heard saying, this will never work. But we were immediately encouraged by what the majority said. It sounded like a lot of people were thinking the same thing we were. The environmental movement needs a makeover. But what does that mean? Well, from the very beginning, we sought to create a store that flipped the term eco-friendly products on its head. We were tired of ugly, itchy, tie-dyed hemp pants, Grateful Dead shirts, hacky sacks, and Bob Marley posters. Sure, all those things are nice for some, but we both felt that the average American would only respond to eco-friendly products if they were relatively affordable and looked and felt like the kind of products they already buy for their home. The problem was, there were very few companies and products to choose from back in 2004. Flash forward to 2007. The world is a much different place. Instead of desperately looking for new products to sell in our store and on our website, we are constantly inundated on a daily basis with new, stylish green products to sell. We don't even have to look anymore. The companies come to us, and we often have to turn the products away. Since we started, a number of green stores like ours have opened up all over New York City and all over the country. In response, a number of major corporations have launched green sections within their stores or have made significant green commitments to their company's operations. It seems that we are now in the midst of a green revolution. I like to think that 3R Living and the stores like ours have played some role in this. After all, if the planet is being damaged by the actions of man, buying products that are made from recycled or reused materials or by companies manufacturing with reduced environmental footprint is an important part of the future of our planet. But there's still so much to be done. For this year's Earth Day, I want to concentrate my thoughts on the day itself and how it impacts our country. You may think that as an environmentalist, Earth Day is akin to Christmas Day for me. Nothing could be further from the truth. As most environmentalists like to say, make every day Earth Day. That's so true, since celebrating Earth Day with a once-a-year cleanup is like going to Catholic Mass on Christmas Eve. Sure, you'll pray and celebrate for a couple of hours, but you probably won't go back to church until next Christmas Eve, unless someone you know is getting married. The same could be said for the average Earth Day event attendee. It's nice to remember the importance and health of the planet we are stuck on for a day, but most stop thinking about it after just a couple of hours. So what we need is a more robust, inclusive Earth Day, which will remind people to celebrate it year-round. To that end, here are three simple changes I would make to Earth Day if I had my way. First, we, as environmentalists, need to start realizing that anyone who understands and appreciates our message is our ally and friend. Evangelicals, right-wing security hawks, Republicans, and corporate leaders are all taking on the global warming fight. As painful as this might be, we need to embrace them. Secondly, no more long-winded speeches. My God, this is almost mandatory for an Earth Day event. No to all environmentalists out there. This is the 21st century. We live in a world of Internet activism and flash mobs. 
For better or for worse, the human race's ability to focus on any one thing for more than a few seconds has been greatly diminished over time. We need more clever, interesting, quick actions to help capture the greatest number of people at Earth Day events. Finally, we need to use Earth Day to help support companies that are green. I don't just mean three-hour living. I sometimes get complaints from people who say, buying green is too expensive. In some ways, they're right. The problem is that good green products are being made by small companies who are struggling to make it in this world. Lacking the money and infrastructure of the big corporations, they have to charge more for their products. The thing is, the more people support green products, the easier it will be for companies to moderate and lower their prices. As much as I love our store, I dream of a future in which eco-friendly stores don't exist because every product on the market will already be eco-friendly. It's a bit utopian, I know, but a guy can dream. Mark Caserta is an environmental activist and co-owner of 3R Living in Brooklyn. You can check out the store online at 3RLiving.com. Shopping can work up an appetite, and if you're buying green, wouldn't you also want to eat that way? The notion of a sustainable restaurant filled Dan Crum's head with lots of questions and some really big ideas. What if there was an oasis in the city? A place where we could take the good without the bad. An outpost of sorts. What would such a place be like? Well, there would, would certainly be a, a lush garden with, with flowers and a big awning where we could sit in the shade uh, on a swing. A big swing so we could sit side by side. Oh, and the awning wouldn't just block the sun. It would use the sun's energy to make electricity to power a frozen margarita machine. And we would sip margaritas and mojitos while we sat and swung. And for the kids, fruit smoothies made from fresh fruit from the local farmer's market. And, and the kids could blend their own smoothies with a, a, a super cool pedal-powered bike blender. Yeah, a smoothie bike. And when we got hungry, we would eat delicious food, picnic style, and, and, and it would be served on special plates that were biodegradable so we didn't pollute, and the cups and napkins and utensils would be made of the same. Oh, oh, and the tables and swings would all be made out of earth-friendly, recycled material. And the people? The people would be happy and friendly with lots of creative energy, and, and they could express their creativity through craft and art and performance, and there would be a free market where they could display and sell their handmade creations. And the kids would be happy too, having fun in the sun, and maybe, maybe even learning a little something about solar energy while they're at it. They could play in a big fountain and help tend and, and water the garden, water it with rainwater we collected. And they could draw and color in, in cool coloring books with real life heroes that empower rather than overpower. And when the sun went down, there'd be free movies, shown outdoors in the garden. We could enjoy the warm summer breeze, sipping our margaritas and fruit smoothies, and eating popcorn, and feeling good about life, and the way we were treating the earth and each other. As it happens, this oasis is a reality in Brooklyn. Habana Outpost is about to open for its third season. We've grown every year, staying open longer and adding more and more programs. It hasn't been easy, but with the support of our neighbors and our green partners, we've surpassed our initial goals and have much more planned to help the environment and the community.
If you want to see this oasis for yourself, come celebrate our achievements and join us on May 12th for our season reopening. Dan Crum is with Habana Outpost. It's located at 757 Fulton Street in Brooklyn. If you want to see pictures of the bicycle-powered smoothie blender or the solar-powered margarita machine, visit ecoeatery.com. What are your Earth Day plans? Do you have any ideas of your own for improving the environment? Share them with us on our bulletin board at WFUV.org. You can also podcast the show and download archives there as well. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan and to all of our essayists. Yerina Mujica, Research Associate at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Dan Crum from Havana Outpost. Mark Caserta, co-owner of 3R Living. Ruth Alchek, senior editor at Domino Magazine. Andy Revkin, The New York Times. And Glenn Phillips, executive director, New York City Audubon. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great Earth Day.